This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered what became of the last emperor of the Han Dynasty, or how the art of war influenced this time in history? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, interesting days we live in, but I'm glad that we share this epoch together. How are you today? Paul, I'm in mourning. I'm in official mourning, as you know, as we've talked about for about half an hour or so before we started recording. I am, I and all my fellow countrymen, we're, we're officially in mourning. We're all sad. You can't see, but I'm wearing a fully black suit and a top hat. Um, <laughs> no, just the black shirt, but I'm still impressed. <laughs> okay, maybe not a full tuxedo. I'm not wearing a full suit, but obviously it's a very interesting time in history we're living through right now. And the death of Prince Philip has just added to that interest. And as I, as I seem to be saying, most of these episodes we're recording during the coronavirus pandemic is going to be darn interesting to look at when we get to this time in history. Paul, how are you doing? Oh, well, I'm not an official mourning, thankfully. No, but, <laughs> you know, of course, my sympathy is to the Queen and her family, of course, exactly. to our British cousins. And if you're the United States, for most of the last century, our closest and best ally, whom you might even occasionally call a friend, which is a very rare thing in high state politics. <laughs> that doesn't reflect on you and I personally, no. but as countries go, <laughs> it's a very rare and special thing, though I'm sure there are people out there that will be more than happy to gainsay on me, but that's their cross to bear. But it is interesting times, and when world leaders die, and he's definitely among them, I mean, he's not the queen, but... He was obviously an extremely influential figure in mm. how the British monarchy operates from the mid-20th century to the present, and he's played an invaluable role in that. And despite whatever one may feel about him personally and, and various views he's expressed over time, we're not here to discuss that, and that's entirely for one's own conclusions. But for all intents and purposes, for a historical moment that you and I are living through— it definitely is not without its weight and significance because, as you and I were discussing earlier, in many respects, it's the first go at what will be a much larger situation when Elizabeth II eventually passes. And the world is going to see for the first time, I like to think, what that transition will look like the mourning process and, and everything that goes along with the credits. There's no transition process here yet, but kind of getting an idea of what will follow when that comes. It's the dress rehearsal, basically. Your words. <laughs> what have we got on today, Paul? Well, first off, we're going to spend all of today in China, but in very mm. different ways. I know you are wrapping up 
the death rattle of the Han Dynasty and yeah, the creation yeah. of the Three Kingdoms. And I'm really excited in my segment because we're going to do something that I've been wanting to do for the longest time. Something that I take tremendous interest in. And as we were talking in pre-roll, I'm literally foaming at the mouth about. <laughs> and that is through the lens of Sao Sao, having our first foray and discussion into the history of intelligence. That is something to look forward to. That's something I'm very excited about. And when we get to that segment, you all listening to us, wherever you may be, will probably find it rather fascinating as well. But before we get to all that and the rest, let's queue up our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. What? Evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So uh, if you've listened to AD History recently, you'll know I've been spending an awful lot of time in China with the Han Dynasty, and I'm finally wrapping up after this. I promise I won't talk about China for at least one episode, maybe. <laughs> Who knows what happens? But Goodness. Over the last 30 years or so of Chinese history, we've studied so far in AD History, you'd believe that the Han Dynasty came to an end somewhere in the midst of all those battles and warlords claiming huge areas of the nation. Yet the amazing thing about all that is that during this period, the Han Dynasty still existed and was still in power. Well, technically. So to wrap this up, I want to step away from the warlords turfing up the country and taking thousands of lives. I want to focus on the life and times of the Han Dynasty's final emperor, Jian of Han. Jian's actions would not only lead to his time as ruler coming to an end, but also signified the official final ending point of the Han Dynasty. And what's really fitting about this is that he happened to abdicate in 220 AD. So thank you. It really fits in with our uh, framework of this podcast. I hope he did that on purpose. But before we begin, I want to go to the very beginning and talk about his his youth, his time as a child before he even became emperor. And uh, Jean was born in 181 AD. And despite being known as Emperor Jean, his personal name was actually Liu Ji. This is a thing you'll see all across China. I think even in modern cultures today, emperors take on different names when they become emperor. And even when they have like a name after they die as well, it's a, very, it's, it's a whole thing. That's certainly true in the case of Japan. Um, yeah, in Japan. Yeah, yeah. They, they get their own era and a new name. And even in the monarchies that still exist in the West, still have a regnal name. It just so happens in the case of, say, Queen Elizabeth, it also happens to be her original given name. Not to complicate matters at all, thankfully. No, luckily not to make things too confusing. But um, for this episode, I'm sticking with calling him Jean just for ease. If I'm flicking between these two names, it's just going to make things confusing. So he's just called Jean. That's all you really need to know right now. And of course, he, he was born at a very troubled time in Chinese history. It was a, in the midst of the Yellow Turban Revolt is when he was brought into this world. And his father was Emperor Ling, who, as we know, he was the emperor at the time of the Yellow Turban Revolt. And his mother was one of Ling's consort, Consort Wang. Ling's other consort was the Empress, Empress He, and 
Empress He was fearful and jealous of this consort Wang, and this led to He poisoning Wang shortly after she gave birth to the infant Emperor Zhan. This left Zhang to be cared for by his grandmother, and Zhang was actually the second son of Emperor Ling. Ling's two sons had different mothers. Empress He gave birth to Ling's firstborn, while as we mentioned, Consort, Consort Wang gave birth to Zhang. And Ling's firstborn was Liu Ban, who became Emperor Shao. And if you've been listening for a while, you know what happened to Emperor Shan, and you're going to know what's happened in this upcoming segment. Because he was second born, this meant that Jean never really expected to become emperor. Yeah, that's funny that at this point that there's no expectation for him to become emperor. Who isn't becoming emperor? I mean, <laughs> yeah. goodness, you know, as soon as you enter this world, you basically become a candidate if, if you're considered useful. First born, second born, tenth born, born in North America. It doesn't matter at this point. Everybody is in the fray if, if you're in the, the Hong court or what remains of it. It's a bit like Oprah, isn't it? You get to be emperor and you get to be emperor. Uh, okay, wow. Okay, so ancient <laughs> memes aside, yes, absolutely. Yeah, ancient memes. So, well, we're talking about ancient history, Paul. We should only reference ancient memes. It is also an iconic <laughs> one. So historically significant as memes go, I guess. Mm-hmm. And anyway, memes aside, <laughs> um, <laughs> their father, Ling, died in 189 AD. And of course, his older brother became Emperor Shao. And because Ling died at a relatively young age, it meant that Shao took the throne at just 13 to 14 years old. So not only was China at a time of incredible unrest, their emperor was a literal child. This was, it was just one disaster after another. And as we talked about a couple episodes back, the Han dynasty was full of power-hungry eunuchs and rebels. Just This isn't a time you want a child on the throne. Simply, you don't want a kid on the throne. Depending on what you're looking to do, yeah. Speaking of depending on what you're looking to do, um, someone who would have wanted a child on the throne is Dong Zhao, who we mentioned. He was a very fierce, powerful warlord in this period of Chinese history. He was probably the biggest threat facing China. And when he came face to face with Emperor Shao and his brother, they were children. And reports say that Shao was a teen and was sort of too scared to even talk to Dong Zhao, where Zhang, on the other hand, showed himself to be brave and smart. And Dong liked Jean, and he liked him for multiple reasons. He liked the fact that Jean didn't have a mother. As we mentioned, his mother died. So he had no mother and clan to support him. He was very much an outsider. With so little support behind him, Dong Zhao felt Jean would make a much better emperor than his brother. He would have been better to manipulate anyway. He would be a much better puppet. So Dong Zhao became so powerful that he was actually able to remove Emperor Shao off the throne. And after removing him, Dong poisoned him. And Emperor Shao died between 13 to 14 years old in 189 AD. We mentioned this in a previous episode, but just to refresh on it. And now Xian, his younger brother, became emperor because obviously as a 13-year-old, he had no children. And even though he was emperor, his strings were just being pulled by Dong Zhan. And we know this because Dong Zhao was just a dreadful person and he was so dreadful that he was actually killed by his own men in 192 AD and this left the young Zhan as emperor of China and his puppet master had just died that's kind of worse in some ways having a puppet emperor is bad but having a puppet emperor with no puppet master with no one pulling the strings that's kind of a whole different can of worms so this meant that he did rule China technically but 
what kind of rule was there? Like, he was the rightful emperor of China and he carried that name of Han. But by now, that meant very little, if not anything at all. And as we know from our previous episodes, China was now really being ruled by various warlords. First, Dong Yuzhan as a puppet, then many others did. And he spent the majority of his time as a puppet emperor for various other people. And he had little next to no power unto himself. Though what power he did have, one source says he used it actually for good. Obviously, this is a really chaotic time in Chinese history. A lot of people being killed, a lot of people being injured. And he used his powers to help those in need during this chaotic period of Chinese history. He was even basically a hostage in his own capital. And when he finally was able to escape the city, he was welcomed by a certain warlord, everyone's favourite king machine slash poet, Cao Cao. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, Cao Cao, who we're very familiar with by now. If you don't know who Cao Cao is, go listen to literally the previous episode. You get a very good idea. Oh, yeah. So this is something really interesting. Uh, this emperor's relationship with Cao Cao. And you may think Cao Cao would have wanted the emperor dead as he wanted to rule himself. However, they actually had a really good relationship to start with anyway. It was one of those sort of relationships that benefited both of them. With Jean on his side, it gave Cao Cao more credence to be ruler of all of China. He, he could be like, hey, look, the Han emperor's with me. That means I have the right to rule. It's funny, when you, when you mentioned that the relationship was good, you immediately answered the question, but the first question I asked myself was, good for who? <laughs> yeah, both of them. Yeah, well, apparently at least at first. Yeah, yeah, as you'll see. And Jean benefited from this, just simply being protected. Cao Cao was a powerful dude, so to be under his wing and have his men under his wing, like, mm. you're going to be fine, but he was still just a puppet for Cao Cao. And... Over a few years, Emperor Jean actually tried to take back power. However, he thought, maybe I could usurp Cao Cao. Well, not usurp, Cao Cao's usurper here, I suppose. Maybe I Definitely. could take, yeah, yeah, maybe I could take over from Cao Cao. But this came to a horrible end when uh, Jean found his servants and messengers slaughtered by Cao Cao's men. So this made him even more powerless. What little supporters he had were killed. Though, What's most interesting is that this relationship between Xian and Cao Cao would actually go on to benefit Cao Cao's son more so, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. And of course, this wasn't the only thing going on in China at the time. During this 10-year period of Chinese history, the country just carried on being divided up more, and those key players like Liu Bei and Sun Quan we mentioned earlier were still doing their thing. And while they had actually joined forces at the Battle of Red Cliff to defeat Cao Cao, their partnership came to an end pretty soon after that. And even Cao Cao himself, despite having a little break after his defeat in 208 AD, I think by, 20, by 211 AD, he was back battling anyone and everyone who came into his way. You can take the fighter out of the ring, but you can't take the ring out of the fighter. No, definitely not. And over the next few years, these three figures, they would divvy up China into three areas Three places, three kingdoms, maybe? Oh, maybe. Cer certainly effective <laughs> territories controlled. Mm -hmm. Cao Cao was in the north, Liu Bei was in the southwest, and Sun Quan was in the southeast. However, by the 15th of March 220, Cao Cao died. He is thought to be aged between 64 and 65 years old. And we aren't sure how he died exactly. The, the only reference we have is a head disease. 
what that could be, I have no idea. Does that mean like an actual infection in the head or maybe some sort of mental health thing? Honestly, I'd be curious as to the meaning in the original language because there could be something that's lost in translation here. Yeah, it could be. All I could find it point out as a head disease. It could be his brain cancer for all we know. But what we do know is that he wasn't killed in battle. And I think that says an awful lot about South South. I think that's the way he would have wanted to go. He, he wasn't killed by any of his other men like Dong Zhuo were. He died, I guess, on his own terms in some weird way. That's a good way of describing it, I think, as far as he's concerned. Yeah. And his claim on China it, and all his men, they went to his son, Sao Pi. And uh, as we mentioned, Sao Pi was close with the then still emperor of China, Zhang. Yep, despite all this, Zhang was still emperor of China. Not for long, however, because by now, China was well and truly out of Zhang's control. And Sao Pi was able to persuade, such suggest by some means, that Zhang abdicate his throne to Sao Pi. And this is my own hypothesis, but I imagine Jean knew that this was the best route for the nation. The Han name meant so little by now. And Cao Cao had actually brought a huge amount of China back together under his rule. I mean, it was through bloody means. As I mentioned here, we started this conversation, all those episodes back, all about the mandate from heaven. And I think we can easily say that now the mandate had left the Han dynasty, that's for sure. Was it with Cao Pi? Maybe not, because obviously we have the Three Kingdoms happen. So on the 11th of December, 220 AD, Jean formally gave the throne to Sao Pi, Sao Sao's son. So here's kind of an interesting question here that wherever you're listening, certainly I pose this to you as well, Patrick, and we want to know what you guys are thinking here. When you're going through this kind of immense collapse that we have seen unfold over the last several episodes from the end of the Han Dynasty to the creation of these three kingdoms, Something I wonder is, at what point do they truly and fully recognize and accept that whatever it is they were is no longer in existence and it's never coming back? You know, that's kind of one of the interesting aspects, kind of the myopic nature of the human experience, where at what point do we realize that, at least in terms of the Han, that all is lost and it is to the dustbin of history. That that is such a good insight there, Paul. And I think like as people who study history and look into history a lot, we 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 put like very specific start and end dates on things because we can retroactively look at it and know when things did divisively start and divisively end. But look at the time, you don't tell. Like I hate to mention the current world situation, but what you just said is very on point with that like when do people realize that that's over and we are in a new thing. People go, keep on saying, I want to go back to normal. Like, that normal probably isn't really coming back. Certainly not as we would have known it. Exactly, not as we, yeah. It reminds me of a fantastic quote. I probably mentioned it here on the show at some point, but it's particularly applicable now by Soren Kierkegaard, which is mm. that history is experienced forward, but understood backwards. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. But um, And that's one of the great challenges of the historian is trying to maintain that prospective mm. insight and in putting yourself in their place. In which case, I can't help but ask myself, when did they realize it? When did the penny drop? I think it dropped. I think by the time like Ling, by the time Ling went, I reckon they probably realized, yeah, this is probably on there. But what, what do I know? 
But speaking of the end of the Han dynasty, as Sao Pi wasn't a Han, it meant his dynasty took on a new name and he called his newly formed kingdom Sao Wei. And finally, after the Han dynasty started to crumble with the Yellow Turban Revolt all those years ago, the Han dynasty had formally ended and the first of the three kingdoms was established. We're finally there, the first of the three kingdoms formed. And this goes on beyond the uh, decade of today's episode. But as I'm probably going to give China a miss next time, I just want to cover it here. So Sao Wei was the first of these three kingdoms formally created in 220 AD. And over the next decade, two more kingdoms would be created. The next one happened just the following year in 221 AD. Liu Bei officially made his southwest kingdom the territory of Shu Han. And then in 229 AD, Sun Quan officially made his southeast territory the kingdom of Dongwu. So all three kingdoms were finally formed. But the most interesting thing about this all, and this is what, what people tend to remember, that he abdicated and the three kingdoms happened, but abdication isn't death. That meant Emperor Xian was still about. And by the time he abdicated, he took the throne at about eight years old, I believe. By the time he abdicated, he was about 39 to 40 years old. So a huge chunk of his being, his existence was as a worthless puppet emperor over a falling state. And he found himself as a middle-aged guy well, not quite middle-aged in this time of day. We we mm. see this age as being middle-aged, but... So true, so true. It was his twilight years, I imagine, in this sort of time of China. As in a relative, well, relatively peaceful area in a controlled kingdom. And he was actually given the title Duke of Shangyang. So he still held some credence. He wasn't kicked to the curb like we see with other royalty through history who lose their power. His life after abdicating was a simple one. And he actually married one of Cao Cao's daughters after Cao Cao insisted he did marry one of them. While this was, I guess, something of a forced marriage, they seemed to, they, they stayed together. They didn't like leave straight after this. And he actually acquired medical skills during China's chaotic period. And he actually used these to become a doctor afterwards. So this peaceful life of helping the sick is vastly different to his chaotic early days. On the 21st of April, 234 AD, at the age of 53, Jean died peacefully. And while no longer emperor, he was still given the same funeral of an emperor. He was given a royal funeral. It's about the only thing that has happened peacefully so far in the last few episodes as far as the Han Dynasty goes in China, my goodness. Yes, yeah, the only thing to peacefully happen is his death. And he was given the funeral of an emperor and he was put to rest along with the entire Han dynasty. Indeed, indeed. They are in their proverbial tomb, as it were. And seen. <laughs> it's true enough. It's true enough, mm. my friend. Paul, I'd love to talk to you about this as well. This isn't so much yeah. about the Han dynasty because we talked about them from death. And I want to talk a little bit about this period of time in AD history. So these yeah. past four episodes I have been fascinating to research. And something I wanted to do in this podcast is present large stretches of history over multiple episodes. Oh, yeah. And while we have covered bits over multiple episodes, this feels like the first time for me that I've done a deep dive into a large expanse of time and followed the story thoroughly. We just wrapped up 40 years of Chinese history in great, great detail. Like when I was researching this, not to toot my own horn, but most other sources wrapped up these 40 years in one essay or like one video. This is what AD history is all about, looking at things in detail like this. And China's story definitely doesn't end there. 
but I'm going to step away from China just for a bit. And I'm sure you guys will know more about the Three Kingdoms and we will get there, I imagine. But I just need to step away from all this for a moment. But Paul, I'd love to hear from you. And of course, I want to hear from the listeners. What were your thoughts on this? Did you enjoy following this story as much as I enjoyed researching it over these multiple episodes? Or do you prefer when we contain subjects to just one episode? I'd love to hear what you think of this, Paul. What you thought of hearing me rattle on about China for the past four episodes? I'd love to hear what you listeners thought about hearing me rattle on about China for the past four episodes. I think there's a, a good deal to discuss here as far as that goes. First off, objectively so, you've done a fantastic job of covering this and covering it in detail. <laughs> and that's Thank a big you. deal. Credit where due. And I, I think there are quite a few people that would agree with me on that subject that are listening right now. As far as 80 history goes, it had always been my aspiration that we would have an opportunity to do something just like you just completed. Part of me feels like we always call it the tapestry of history, and this has felt somewhat like quite more in detail, that sort of tapestry taking shape. Yes, and since this is a, a world history podcast mm. that has a very specific goal where we are trying to find the stories and, and the history and the information that from episode one begin building the tapestry that is our modern world. And that's really important to emphasize here because, yes, we're doing this because we want to have a world history podcast and doing it decade by decade. But one of the overarching objectives here, and this goes into a great deal of our thinking in regards to the subjects we cover, is there's always the question, how does this tangibly contribute to the world we know today? Even 1,800 years ago now, what lessons, what events, what consequences does it spawn that directly leads to the world we know, what we call the HD world? And we've always wanted to do it in detail, right? Because so much is lost without that. History is made up in detail. It's very, very hard and you and I have talked about this before here on the show, that when you get really neatly packaged history, and certainly from the perspective of you and I, there's an immediate skepticism. That is far too neat and, and well mm. put together for me to accept it at face. Because we're always talking about the big C word. Context. Context. And context is all about details. And so it's very hard to understand historical events without that context and taking the time to find the detail, to be able to build that world so we understand how it was happening to them. How are they thinking about it? How are they experiencing it? They can't see their future. You know, that's a funny part about history, isn't it? Is that we mm. always kind of have this inborn thought, not everybody, but many do, that they could see what we know now, or at least what we think we know now. And... It's just not the case at all. And so when I see you personally taking the time to go and look at this, well, first off, absolutely critical portion of history for China and by extension the world, to me, in so many respects, it is one of the fundamental characteristics for what I think makes AD history special. And for a lot of people, ancient Chinese history, some people may be well-versed in that. 
I'm not. I wasn't before this. Yeah, I was going to tell you for certain is that the vast majority, even for the historically inclined and interested here in the United States, know very little about this. You and I are not historical Rolodex. No. We have our no. we have our times that where we really have a lot of information and we can really, really just go in depth and just entirely off the cuff. And so you and I are learning a lot right now, and we're historically inclined. So I mean, relative to the societies we lived, a lot of this is new information. And when it comes to China, this is not a commentary on the present by any means, but when you look at the greater sweep of China and what it's meant for the world as a sweep of historical civilization over an immense period of time, it's one of those continually re-emerging focal points of power and influence. And so many points in time control so many of the events that happen in the world. And this is certainly true in the ancient setting, which is what I'm really concerned with here. And you gave it the time it deserves. You know, obviously, we covered Rome, we're covering Rome, and that's where the story Rome's is. Rome's not going anywhere. Yeah, Rome's not going anywhere anytime soon. No, 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 no. That's going to turn into a shit show very shortly, I assure you all. <laughs> not that it hasn't been already in many respects, but on top of that, and this is the, also the important part, because it's so outside of our historical knowledge in terms of the things that you and I were taught, primary school, mm. secondary school, university, whatever the case may be, not part of the standard curriculum here for the most part. I could be wrong. My information be, might be out of date, but I think I'm pretty much right on this. And so giving it this time, this detail, all the contextual realities and continuing to weave the tapestry, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Patrick, I never want to talk about China again, <laughs> but we're going to. <laughs> Bravo. Good show, my friend. So that's my thoughts. You guys, you know, what do you think about this, listening wherever you may be? Let us know on social media. Let us know down in the comments on YouTube. Send us an email. We always love hearing from you guys. And we want to know, because as far as I'm concerned, this is, a, this is going to be a, well, it can't be done all the time. I do love these micro-narratives where we're able to tell the story in a detail where another show or a YouTube channel wouldn't necessarily be able to do it in the same kind of detail with the, with the same kind of finesse. And as I just said, I don't want to talk about China ever again, or at least for a while, but <laughs> we're going to pull because we are looking, we're kind of the other side of the coin, I suppose, of this subject when we look into your segment for today's episode. Well, I can definitely tell you it is certainly a portion of the coin, which side it's on. I <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? But it's going to be a lot of fun. So like I said, once again, bravo, Patrick. And thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening. And like you've been doing an expert job in this as well. Like your your deep dives into the Roman emperors. We've covered. I think you've covered more or less most of the Roman emperors. And when 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 this is all wrapped up, to be able to have those in the bank and look back at all these great in depth profiles on the emperors of Rome, that's going to be really fascinating to have. I'm looking forward to when we're at that point. Certainly, it is. And the one other thing that I would add here, and this is very important to know, is that every subject you and I choose, because if you're listening to us. Obviously, you can't know what we're thinking or planning. But the one thing that we can assure you is that every topic that we present has a very specific and well-deliberated purpose. <laughs> and we love doing it for you. You guys are great. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. 
This is the AD History Podcast. Now on to our famous uh, middle segment of the show where me and Paul ask a question uh, sent in from you patrons. And Paul, we've got some exciting stuff available for patrons. Am I correct in saying that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we absolutely do. And it's, it's really cool. I think you guys will appreciate this. So as you guys know by now, if you are a returning and continual listener of AD History, that if you donate to AD History at the minimum $3 a month or higher, one of the benefits of doing so is you always get our newest episodes 48 hours in advance from their public release. It's wonderful because through Patreon, it gives you a special Patreon contributor RSS feed where you can take that RSS feed, plug it into your podcast player of choice, and it will go directly to your device automatically and you will have 80 history 48 hours early it's an amazing thing we've gotten good feedback on it i've seen it work in motion it's a brilliant thing but we are going to expand this a little bit in addition and this is for all contributors from three dollars a month or higher that we're going to have a special patreon director's cut of each episode now what does this mean for you, the potential contributor who wants to support 80 History, get their episodes early, get a longer episode, in addition to many other wonderful benefits, is that usually these episodes will include things that are not in the publicly released cut. Now, if you just are listening to us and you're supporting the show, but you can't uh, contribute to us on Patreon, Totally understand it. There's nothing that is going to detract from what is available to everybody, but it'll be some additional information, some additional discourse, things that will inform things better, a little bit more detail here, kind of some fun back and forth with Patrick and I here. A lot of fun and definitely further enhances the flavor of you who wants to contribute and are a fan of the AD History Podcast. I'm excited about this, Patrick. What about you? No, I'm really excited about it as well. It's, it's such a cool, unique idea. There's just a lot of director's cuts going on at the moment, I suppose, aren't there, Paul, as you just mentioned, off, off, off recording, off mic. Purely <laughs> coincidental, guys. Purely <laughs> coincidental. As far as we're concerned, they stole it from us. Yes, yes, definitely. Zack Snyder thought, hey, why don't I do a longer version if that's what AD History are doing? No, it's a really fun idea. Looking forward to seeing what makes the cut in the director's version myself. Looking forward to seeing... I guess I'm going to have to be a bit more sensitive with what I say because a lot of the stuff I say, I think, oh, Paul will cut that out, but maybe this time he won't. <laughs> yeah, I will t- turn it into a game show. Just st- put it put it on a wheel and spin. You know, a, a little bit of the wheel going on, as it were, if you guys, if there's a Wheel of Fortune fans out there under under oh. the age of 50. Um, everyone, I think everyone has a good idea of the Wheel of Fortune, but... I would hope so. That's all great stuff. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. That's right. Patreon.com slash AD History Podcast. But that's not all we're doing. And this one is available to anybody that loves YouTube. So, yeah, um, me and Paul, we know how much you guys love YouTube. Um, a lot of people love YouTube. I, I, I'm kind of a big fan of it, I suppose. And AD History Podcast is on YouTube. And we recently amassed over 1,000 subscribers on there, which is great to know. And we want to dedicate more time to YouTube. So I won't say what exactly, but we're hoping to bring you guys more YouTube exclusive content in the future. So 
If you're not already, go subscribe to the YouTube channel, AD History Podcast. It should come up pretty quickly. There'll be a link in the description of this podcast, I'm sure. Go subscribe on there and hopefully in the not too distant future, there will be some content going out, some AD History somewhat related content going out on the channel for you to enjoy. And of course, on there is also all the podcasts in you on YouTube if you like to listen to your podcast like that. And some extra bonus sort of extracts from the podcast. Loads of good stuff on there. Hopefully more even gooder stuff coming on the future. One little further giveaway I'll give to you guys because just to give you a little bit more of an idea without giving it all away, because it's going to take a little time. We have some run up to go through, mm. but these are not going to be extracts from the podcast. This is something that is going to be optimized YouTube videos and obviously it's in history, and it's history that'll be within the 2,000-plus-year epoch the show covers. But it's not the show, but we think it's something that you guys will really like, and we're going to keep you updated as we go along, and it's going to be a lot of fun, because we know there's a YouTube audience there. They're wonderful. We've, we're really growing a, a good, thoughtful, dedicated community, and we appreciate every one of you. Some of them, you guys, we're getting to know better than others, but... Definitely, if you're a fan there, let us know you exist, because it's always wonderful to hear from you guys. We're listening. We're absolutely mm. listening. We see it. And also, on top of that, while I'm at it, if you love the show and you want to support us, but you can't do it on Patreon, can't quite make it right now, we totally understand. Times are hard, but there is something you can do, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, which is to leave a glowing five-star rating and review. One is because we want to know what you guys are thinking. Two, it helps people find the show. You know, Apple is not particularly forthcoming how their algorithm works in regards to review, but good reviews are certainly not going to hurt. And on top of that, we love hearing it from you guys. We read those and we learn from them as well. And some of them really just warm the cockles of the heart. You know, you, you think to yourself, wow, we've touched somebody out there in, in a way that is meaningful. And in a world where sometimes we all feel very disconnected, podcasting definitely speaks to the human soul in a way that is incredibly genuine. That's the best part of doing it. Could not have put it better myself, Paul. And of course, we have a patron question. That's what we do in this middle section. And we just have the simple question, why do you do this? <laughs> and I presume they mean the podcast specifically, not just why do we do life in general. Paul. Why do you do this? <laughs> you know, I'm curious, you listening, wherever you may be listening, have you ever just asked yourself why you do something? And when you do it, do you find yourself at times a little confounded by the answer, which is say so you can't always put quite the finger on it? So the question being here, why did we decide to do 80 History? And I, I think the first and most obvious answer, which I think can best be described as Occam's razor, is we're certifiably insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty silly thing we're doing at the moment, going through all of like 2020 years of history, decade by decade. It sounded like a good idea at the time, but we're kind of just going through it like... <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of just, it's just carrying on. It just carries on happening. But on a more serious note, I think I was thinking about this, Paul, when we got this question. I think one of the main reasons... I wanted to do this podcast was to learn myself. Like I wanted to understand how we got from ancient Rome to now. And I wanted to know, and obviously we can't know every inch of it, but to have a general idea, a step-by-step -step guide of what happened when and what happened to make that happen next. And I think that's what we're doing. I think we're, 
partially learning ourselves more about how exactly we got to this point because we're part of this journey with you guys listening. And it is indeed a journey. I mean, to be honest, I think for me personally, the answer to this question has evolved over time. When we started, and if you go back into the first season, we Patrick and I briefly mentioned the circumstances under which we met. And just as a brief mm-hmm. recap, I reached out to Patrick in March of 2018 for TGNR because I did an interview on him and I did a piece on him. And it was fantastic. The thing I didn't expect, and you can never know when you're cold reading a potential interview subject that you're you're looking to write about, how long how well you get along with them. And so you always kind of have to take secondary cues based on what's online and their work to to try to cobble together what the possibilities are. But in, in the case of Patrick and myself, one thing that was undeniable is that as interview subjects go, I've interviewed quite a few people at this point, the one thing that you can never anticipate but hope like hell that it happens, which is you just, by virtue of your personalities, get on like a house on fire. You and I most certainly did. The fun mm. aside is the thing that really triggered me to do it was your description of on your Twitter of yourself, which is YouTube's number one Leon Trotsky impersonator. <laughs> and I thought to myself, one, obviously this guy has a tremendous appreciation of history and a portion of history that I find very interesting. And he's funny as hell. And in, in my kind of humor, which is very offbeat, sarcastic, dry, and sometimes sardonic, but jovial and jocular. Mm. And naturally, courses of events led to, to you and I, what, eight or nine months later, actually meeting in person in Brooklyn and having a yeah. fantastic night. And even when we first met, we had we had, didn't consider working together at that point. We hadn't gotten quite that far. I don't think that was in the cards at that point. We weren't thinking about it. But we both expressed an interest in doing a podcast because it's an incredible mm. medium. It's different than any other. At the end of that night when you and I met, when we were in the Uber and you mentioned a podcast and I said, are you talking about as in being a guest on a podcast that I host as an interview subject? Or are you talking about co-hosting a podcast together? The answer was, of course, the latter. And we were kind of figuring out what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to work together. We knew we wanted to do it on history, but we didn't know what. And then you came out with this incredible idea of AD history. And, it, and it's such an incredible coincidence Obviously, the idea evolved over time. The the original conception at its heart is the same, but how we're executing it has certainly evolved, and and it would over the following months before we released. The thing I loved about it was the idea of starting at the beginning of this epoch, whatever you want to call it, we're all starting from the same point, doing it decade by decade. And Patrick unknowingly tapped into something that had been kind of latent in me because I was so impressed with the now very well-known YouTube channel, The Great War, and obviously now you, with Indy Night Ellie's moved on to World War II in real time. And I remember first being exposed to that and thinking to myself, that is exactly the kind of thing I would love to do, to be able to examine in detail, have that chronological structure. And we built from there, but on a more fundamental level. And I'm curious what your thoughts here are, Patrick, because it's not always the same, but we, we are obviously very much batting on the same team is that, well, one is, it's a privilege, right? It's a privilege to do what you and I do. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so fun. And it is an absolute privilege for us to, to have the time and the ability to do this. Like, I, I think that's why a lot of people want to do what we are doing, but can't for one reason or another. So it is, I feel very honored to be able to do this. And for all the, in the democratization of media, all of the individual voices that are screaming into the void that is our internet, 
<laughs> people are listening to ours. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a real honor. It is. It's a. It's an absolute honor. It's also a little strange because it's not like doing like a call-in radio show or something like that, or or having an audience and and putting on a show. We know mm. you guys are there. You've made your your attention and dedication and fandom to the show abundantly clear. But at the same time, we don't actually many times get to meet many of you. So it's a weird dichotomy. We know you're there. We know you're listening. We know you're engaged, which is the incredible privilege. But there is that kind of weird disconnect. But for me, on the fundamental level, as far as history is concerned, in many respects, what is most important to me is throughout the existence of humans and civilizations, there's always been a tug and pull about what's the history going to be, which is not mm. to be confused with what the past was. And for me, more than anything, I'm not interested in a particular narrative to meet a particular end. I'm interested in learning this history with the best methods possible. And whatever that means, so be it. Because when it comes to history, and this is an old story about Sir Winston, somebody asked him, what, you know, what, what should I study? Young man asked him, what should I study? And... Churchill said, well, study history, read history. Inside it are all the lessons and examples of statecraft. It will teach you everything you need to know. Now, you're speaking of it in a very particular context, but it's generally true overall. And to be able to look at it in this kind of detail with you guys, what does a lottery winner have on that? I, I love doing this. I love having an output for history. I love a reason. Obviously, with my job, I primarily have to focus on language. And while history does come into that sometimes, not all that often so to be able to have a source a place to discuss history in detail with someone else as well to, to make content with someone else is a great is a great honor as well it's something so refreshing and different from what i do on name explain yeah it's just very happy to be doing this i think that's why i do it paul probably minus my girlfriend you're probably the person i talk to most at the moment thanks to this pandemic as well you know honestly the, that's actually true of myself as well <laughs> And I couldn't hope for better company. And there was an opportunity there for two people that admire each other's work and, and each other's unique gifts to come together and collaborate mm. and create something that's truly special. And so being able to work with you, you know, you hear Patrick and I talking on the podcast, we get along really well. Guess what, guys? When the microphones are off, it's the exact same thing. This is you and I joining Patrick and myself in this incredible journey through history, having fun the whole way around. It's what we do. It's it's a, it's a tremendous honor to to talk to you guys, to chat with you all every two weeks, to work with Patrick, who is a an excellent partner in all of this, a tremendous colleague, and even better than the first two, a wonderful friend whom I am privileged to work with. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to work with yourself as well. But we, I imagine now... Cheers. Chin chin. I imagine now we have to carry on with the tapestry of history. We do indeed. So that wraps our Patreon submitted question segment. And if you have a question that you want Patrick or myself to answer in this Patreon submitted question segment, donate at the $5 tier or higher. And at some point, you can be pretty well sure that we will answer that question. Obviously, keep it in bounds. Make it about history. You know, hopefully history in the epoch we're covering. If you have questions about the show, how we do things question about Patrick or my professional work, all in game, more than happy to do that. And 
With that now, us here, you there. And now a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So, Paul, we aren't done with China just yet. And I know for a fact that while you are a fan of history in general, military history is your absolute cup of tea. And it's it's something you haven't really got the chance to talk about yet. You haven't been able to flex that military history muscle. But it seems now with Cao Cao and his armies and his fighting, you finally get to shine a light on Something you're quite intelligent about. Oh, boy. The pun. Oh, boy. Patrick in classic form. Everybody, <laughs> he's in classic form today. So, short answer, yes. And this is something that, you know, for the longest time now, for the first two seasons, I've been waiting for a good introduction for. And it just so happens that right here, right now, is the ideal introduction. And yeah, if you're familiar with the show, you know my continuing interest in military history, political history, you know, it's just that multidisciplinary confluence of all these various subjects. But there is one that I find so incredibly fascinating in and of itself. And that is the history of intelligence. So intelligence gathering, covert operations, you get the idea. And In this case, we have been talking about somebody that thought a great deal about this and in many ways, as I said before, provides the ideal introduction. So I think it is best to set the scene. Quote, nothing in war is constant save deception and cunning, close quote. Quote, winning begins and ends with keeping dispositions hidden, close quote. Quote, victory lies in understanding subtleties and attacking the vulnerable and not the invulnerable, close quote. Those three quotes are all attributed to the same figure the figure that we are now so familiar with, the infamous, notorious, and remarkable Cao Cao. And when we start talking about intelligence and covert operations, we're going to get into some detail on this because it's really interesting stuff. It's a fantastic point of departure. When it comes to the matter of the art, or maybe some, the science of intelligence, and covert operations. The East, or the Far East, formalized and deliberated on the concept long before 
you saw anything that was truly equivalent in the West. And this is definitely true in the ancient setting in the time that we are discussing today, Patrick. So in the case of China, there is no work more enduring and consistently relevant than the art of war, which was likely written in the 3rd century BC, and it's accredited to Sun Tzu as the author. Many people know that. However, there's a lot of contention around that conclusion, that Sun Tzu is in fact the author, and there's a whole rigmarole over that debate, but it's not exactly relevant to our discussion here. But what is relevant is that this work has been so widely studied, and in some cases applied, and Cao Cao was a zealous devotee of the art of war. In fact, and this is really incredible, he actually wrote an entire annotated commentary on the art of war. So we're talking about him being a poet-scholar. This is scholarly stuff. I mean, he's thinking about a lot of things. He's really looking to engage his intellect in many ways. That really highlights Cao Cao's scholarly side of his being. And nothing sums up someone who is a great thinker and a great battler and a great fighter more than the fact that the book they choose to annotate and commentate is a book all about fighting. It's just, it perfectly shows both sides of the Cao Cao coin. Oh, it certainly does. And it's really no surprise. Really, it's no surprise. You definitely think, based on everything we know about this man now, mm. that this would be right up his alley, sitting right in his wheelhouse, and you bet your booty it is. So, prior to the actual discovery of the original Art of War manuscript in 1977 in mainland China, Cao's annotated commentary version was actually considered the authoritative version of the work, which is interesting because we didn't have the original manuscript from which to proceed. When they found the original manuscript, it was actually buried with someone. And as far as the dating on it is concerned, they believe, and there may have been additional clues there, of course, that it dates back to 118 BC. First off, think about how many lost original manuscripts are, there are that have influenced our world in incredible ways that we just, we don't know if they are or even if they exist anymore. We talked about this with Strabo and the geography, and while the geography still exists, he did the history as well, and that doesn't exist. Or maybe it does bury with someone, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, this is something you and I have run across many times, mm. and boy, howdy, we're going to run into it a lot again. And you know, somebody who, who writes about Sun Tzu, and many people have, of course, but one that we would take particular interest in was a fellow by the name of Basil Littleheart. He's a fellow Britton to you, who is largely considered to be an incredible military historian, especially of the period in which he lived. If you were called Sir Basil, I'd be kind of shocked if you weren't British. <laughs> I, I, I would hope so. <laughs> and this is what he writes about the art of war. Quote, among all the military thinkers of the past, only Clausewitz, and even he is more dated than Sun Tzu in past antiquated. Although he was writing 2,000 years later, Sun Tzu has clearer vision, more profound insight, and eternal freshness. Close quote. Sir Basil, given the stamp of approval there, he yeah, writes, thanks, Sir Basil. we read. So 
in the case of the art of war, this is this is not going to be a symposium on the entirety of the work. There are many other places you can get that. We're looking at a very particular aspect of it, because in so many ways, as we'll see here shortly, it very much plants so much of the foundation for how intelligence operates in our modern world and how it developed in a more formalized fashion. Because the nature of intelligence, especially military intelligence, depending on the time you were alive and the part of the world that you lived, was valued to varying degrees over time. And in this case, the art of war is no different in that regard. So basically, what is the core thesis of the art of war? Well, it can be summed up in two quotes, and it's interesting, both the first line of the art of war, and it's also the last. Start with the first. Quote, war is a matter of vital importance to the state, the province of life or death, the road to survival or ruin. Close quote. And this is the closing sentence of this epic seminal work. Quote, secret operations are essential in war. Upon them, the army relies to make its every move. Close quote. Though its greatest and most well-known maxim is, quote, Know thy enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be defeated. When you are ignorant of the enemy but know yourself, your chances of winning or losing are equal. If ignorant both of your enemy and of yourself, you are sure to be defeated in every battle. Close quote. The passage above that I just read is an enduring maxim for intelligence, and certainly in military intelligence, for a good reason. But there are some interesting aspects of that that I think are interesting to discuss, and we're going to get to that later on here in this segment. But it's important to lay that down. And so now we're looking at the methodology here in terms of what the art of war is espousing in regards to intelligence, which, as we know, as the reader, is entirely vital. Now, and this is a quote, quote, Now the reason a brilliant sovereign and a wise general conquer the enemy wherever they move, and their achievements surpass those of ordinary men, is their foreknowledge of the enemy situation. This foreknowledge cannot be elicited from spirits, nor from gods, nor by analogy with past events, nor by astrological calculations. It must be obtained from men who know the enemy situation. Close quote. Now that is a basketful, Patrick. Mm-hmm. That's not something you would necessarily expect in this document. Certainly not as no. the modern reader, is it? It sounds so modern. I don't know if it's been translated into modern, into modern language, but it's just almost sounds somewhat like it's been ripped out the cold war doesn't it that's actually an amazing point totally on here and so why did he write this why was this so important at the time how does this apply to military intelligence and the first thing i'm going to say is let's go back into our first season when you did a segment about haley's comment and its relevance in the first Mm. jewish roman war and the portending of supernatural significance that I believe, if I remember correctly, both sides took prior to their engagements Mm. and the war itself. That is what this is taking aim at. That is what it's taking aim at. And because this is not a uniquely Chinese thing, like any 
culture around the world, we all have our various superstitions. Even those of us who identify as more spiritual, religious than those who consider themselves more secular in nature, they exist. Yeah. That they're yeah. they're a a cultural byproduct that cannot be removed or extricated. It is what it is. The interchange of culture. So this is definitely one of the lesser known elements that most people would ever consider in terms of their knowledge of the art of war. And given when it was lightly written, divination or searching for fable omens going into battle was so incredibly common. And when conducting a proper military campaign, which requires making the best decision on tangible evidence about the enemy, such issues regarding divination or omens can lead to absolute disaster. But what's interesting now, we're bringing this at least somewhat into the context of Cao Cao. Cao Cao was stringent among his officers and troops to allow no belief in divination or omens. He possessed a steadfast belief that it is good intelligence that wins wow. battles in war and to put no faith in supernatural signs for leading a hopefully successful military campaign. That's a hugely modern and bold thing to think. Like in this day and in, in, in not this day and age, women, but in the day and age of Southside's time, that's very impressive. How forward thinking, what a bold and brave thing to say. Like, don't believe in that. Let's go with that. That's, that's just remarkable to hear. It really is. And the one thing I'm going to today caution for is not to draw further conclusions about his personal feelings on the greater universe, existence, whatever that may be. Mm. But, and this is most important, within the context of military planning, of which these kind of beliefs and, and practices were absolutely ubiquitous, it is so far ahead of his time and so far ahead of his friggin' contemporaries. Yeah, just so far ahead. It's incredible stuff to see, and it's one of the reasons he's, one of the many reasons he's such a standout figure. Now, with all of that in mind, laying the foundation, weaving the tapestry here, Let's talk about the role of spies and types of intelligence that are discussed and promoted in the art of war. And th this is right from the text. Primary source evidence. The first is what it describes as native agents recruited from enemy countryside. The second is inside agents with enemy officialdom. Then, of course, we have something most people probably have heard about, which are double agents, whom the enemy wrongly regards as its own loyal agents. Then it describes expendable agents used to feed disinformation to the enemy. And the last one it describes is living agents who bring intelligence from within the enemy camp. Interesting. So let's quickly break this down here. So we're talking about the native agents recruited from the enemy countryside. You're looking for sources that are perhaps not part of the military, but for whatever reason are willing to feed intelligence to you because they have some insight that could be useful to you. Hmm. Then, of course, we have the inside agents within enemy officialdom, basically your classic turncoat, your Kim Philby, if you will, among many others. And then you have your double agents, whom the enemy wrongly regards as his own loyal agents. Many examples of double agents in history, but for those of you that enjoy this in the same way as I do, look up Juan Pujol Garcia, better known as Ancient Garbo, one of the most fascinating double agents in history. You're welcome. 
Now you have, of course, your expendable agents, meaning to feed disinformation to the enemy. Basically, it's a disinformer meant to be planted in their ranks to throw them off. We connotate the word expendable. I, this might just be me, but when I hear expendable, I, uh, that means it can be disposed of. It can be, I guess in this sense, killed. So if you were an expendable agent, would your life being on the line be just part of the job, do you reckon? Like, you know, hey, I probably will die by doing this. Is that, is that, or is that just me misinterpreting that word expendable? That depends on how much candor the side that's sending you on this mission is willing to dispose to you. You may not know. And that's part of the situation when it comes to intelligence, which, you know, one of the most important practices, of course, is need to know. And if you think you're disposable, that can definitely change a great deal. But usually it might help just to know a little bit that you're in a great deal of danger. But any any (laughs) sort of situation like this is. And then you have your living agents who bring intelligence from within the enemy camp. Basically, very bold turncoats. And when these five types of agents are all working simultaneously and none knows their method of operation, they are called the, quote, divine skein and are the treasure of a sovereign. Very interesting description mm. of those right out of the, the art of war. Divine skein. It's very interesting, yes. Yes, it is, it is indeed. So what's incredible about this is that it delineates the roles of spies and their different types. And it's fundamentally how we understand them today. Really, you know, on a one-on-one mm. level, this is basically what we understand. This is what they're doing. Yeah, like you, you, you read those five different types of spy, and you can think of like examples, whether that be fictional or real examples of each five of those. They're still applicable into today's conscience as they were back then. Oh yeah, absolutely. Flip through the the works of the late John Le Carre, and it won't take mm. long. I'm trying to figure out which one James Bond fits into, but I think I think he's a bit different to all of them. I don't think he fits any. <laughs> you no, know, he, no, he's, ba- he's basically a, a, basically a superhero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best way to put it. In, in, in a way. So what we're talking about here, because obviously the study and an operation of intelligence has expanded tremendously since this time that we're talking about or or when the Art of War was originally written. And this is what we would know today as human intelligence, which is usually referred to under the acronym HUMANT. This is opposed to the other major means of intelligence known as signals intelligence, or SIGINT. It's an umbrella term, basically, for intelligence collected through things like code breaking, wire tapping. For example, the ultra-secret, the better known as Bletchley Park cracking the various Enigma machine variants, and numerous ciphers used for it by the branches of the Wehrmacht during the war which interestingly enough didn't even come to light until 30 years after the war ended, is a perfect example of SIGINT and its various sub-qualifications. If you want to understand how important that was in terms of the roles of Ultra, in the case of the British, or Magic with the United States breaking the various Japanese codes, in the case of Ultra, my interesting friends, most historians of the period generally believe that without that successful code-breaking effort, it may have delayed Operation Overlord, better known as D-Day, by nearly two years. Two years of the worst conflict in human history. That is a remarkable achievement. And obviously the whole Bletchley Park code-breaking, all that during that war was incredible, but to think how it actually seems to believe to have had such a practical impact. So 
even if you manage to collect accurate intelligence and confirm its uh, veracity, what are the dangers of using it? Like, even though there's many possibilities, are there any bad sides of using this intelligence? That's a complicated question, and it's a really good question. So basically, when you're doing intelligence work of whatever variety, in many cases, what these intelligence agencies are more concerned with sometimes is less the information that they're being provided, and it has a lot more to do with protecting their source, especially if they conclude that is a high-value, trustworthy source that is giving them information of incredible use. And this is a kind of a dangerous thing. So there's this classic and entirely ahistorical example. I'm sure you've heard about this, is the old conundrum about the, the bombing of Coventry during the Blitz. Do you know where I'm going with this? I think so, but obviously tell the audience who don't. <laughs> you might not be familiar with it. So yeah. this is ahistorical. This didn't happen. But the idea was that during the Blitz, which of course... Britons across the island, and as they did with the rest of Europe, were suffering immensely under Nazi German bombs in the Luftwaffe. But at that point, the British in particular had made significant progress in breaking Enigma, specifically the ciphers for the Air Force. And they also began figuring out how they were doing their direction finding in their bombing runs at night. It's roughly equivalent to what we know today as VOR, which is to say there's a radio signal that they send out and that their pilots go and stay on the trajectory of that frequency to find the, their target. One of the, the ciphers that they broke really early on were the Luftwaffe, the Air Force. A lot of that has to do with the application of it, that they were very careless, the Germans in that case. Now, because it's ahistorical, it's still useful, which is to say, the British now know that Coventry is going to be a target. What happens when, over time, the Germans keep saying, how is it that the British or whatever the Allies were keep showing up and know exactly when to be there? It kind of blows their cover. It kind of, it kind of lets, it lets Germany know that England know, basically. I get it. Potentially. And, and yeah, as far as Ultra is concerned and, and the Enigma and the intelligence, the raw decrypts that were coming to the war cabinet in Churchill, this was a constant concern for them. And I'm talking about this in particular because it's a more modern example of the kind of things I'm talking about here where more of our listeners would be more familiar with. And so the whole idea throughout the war was, yeah, the intelligence we gather from it. But the thing that's more important than even the intelligence itself is protecting the ultra secret. That was directive number one, because the second you blow that and the Germans seem to believe that there's something wrong in terms of their enciphering of their communications, the advantage is lost. So you have to pick your battles, literally. Literally, mm. you have to do that. It's all about protecting the source. Yeah, that's why it's about the example of Coventry. Like You might have to let Coventry get bombed to preserve the greater good to save more people, I suppose. Yes, I understand completely. Yeah, and like, like I said, luckily this is a historical. Mm. Coventry did yes, get yeah. bombed. They bombed the hell out of Coventry. Yeah. And they also bombed like places like Bath and like targeting Roman baths there. You know, it's like, come on. It's a yeah. resort town at this point. It's for tourists. I have the yeah, water like over there on my shelf from the bath. We showed it yeah. to you. The other thing here that's really important when we're talking about human intelligence in particular, because even though there is SIGINT in, in a very, what I would call rough and rudimentary state in the ancient world, ciphers and and coded communication has been going on for a long time because it's a really good idea. You need to be able to communicate information. And if it gets intercepted, the enemy can't find out. 
So you hear the words thrown around a lot, misinformation versus disinformation. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really important to clarify exactly what that means. So in the case of misinformation, it's inaccurate information regardless of any potential intent to deceive. You're just wrong. It's not intended by anybody, but it's just wrong. Both of them are wrong, but they're wrong for different reasons. It's everything to do with motivation. In the Mm. case of disinformation, it's intentionally communing covertly inaccurate information for, you know, the benefit of the enemy to hopefully do what you want them to do or encourage them or not encourage them, whatever the case is, to be ready. And and here is, is something that's kind of important because this is a constant dialogue in terms of when it comes to the current intelligence communities. And this is something that was also somewhat being dealt with at the time that we're talking about here in terms of ancient China. And that is the difference between covert action versus intelligence gathering debate, okay? And when it comes to human in particular, and now this is, you know, there's a lot of factors, a lot of different things, different types of intelligence operations going on at once. A lot of times when you're doing intelligence gathering, covert operations a lot of times will overlap with it. One of the big questions here, of course, is should they always be understood to be one and the same? This is something that, uh, you know, somebody that we're certainly all familiar with at this point, Edward Snowden has talked about a great deal. And, you know, the fact of the matter is when we're talking about intelligence gathering versus covert operations within the context of this early Three Kingdoms period, the fall of the Han, in the Chinese context, a lot of times covert operations had a lot more to do with their particular interest in executing successful assassinations. In that time and place, I mean, many different types of covert operations, but that's one that undoubtedly sticks out in this period of time with these people. Speaking of this period of time, uh, South South time and the art of war, was it that well known of before South South? You're saying the definitive version we have had of it was South South's annotated version of it. So was he the one who brought the art of war into our limelight? Was it studied that well before him? And like, was he using it in the height of battle? Was he running around the battlefield with like the art of war in one hand and a sword in another? Well, talk about dropping a bomb of a question or several questions, I should say. <laughs> Some of you may be familiar with the British historian Christopher Andrew. I don't know if you are, Patrick. Uh, it's not ringing a bell, I'm afraid. Yeah, you know, he's basically one of the celebrated dons of the history of intelligence. Overall, he released an excellent book a few years back called The Secret World, where he literally goes way back into antiquity and tells a greater story of intelligence in world history leading to the present. And on top of that, he wrote a fantastic insider history about the KGB called The Sword and the Shield, where his co-author was a former member of the KGB and brought a trove of information that allowed them to write it. He was also given what I would imagine is the privilege of writing the official history for MI5. Hmm. This guy is a a big deal. And what he says on the subject is really fascinating. He said, so this thing has existed since basically 300 BC. And between roughly the beginning of the Han, so not that long after this thing was written, to the end of it, in his view, that while it may have been studied, and it was certainly in imperial libraries, there doesn't appear to be any historical evidence that any ruler of China either A, took it that seriously, or B, implemented it at all, Mm. which makes Cao Cao even more interesting in this respect. More Mm. to the point, it doesn't appear really if any of his contemporary rivals were using it either. So a bit of an upper hand then. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, he knew valuable information when he saw it, and that's very much how he identified it. When, when we're looking at this, we also have to ask ourselves the, the second part of your question, of course, which is how did he actually use it in his military campaigns? And I managed to find a few interesting examples of this. It's by no means exhaustive. You know, this happened a long time ago, but this is generally what has come down to some of what is available. So when he was fighting Lubao, Sao sought to deceive Lubao by trying to communicate that he had actually died. Sao, that Sao Sao actually died. This is, this is really incredible stuff. And he enacted his plan by having his troops display ceremonial mourning flags around their encampment entirely for the benefit of deceiving Lu Bao. They were laying a trap, an incredible ambush. And in doing so, this led him to immediately seizing upon the opportunity that he thought existed, but in reality was a total ruse. And it caused his troops to become ensnared into a very successful ambush by Sao and his army. And this is interesting because when we're talking about the art of war, one of the things that it discusses is creating what it described basically as false situations to deceive the enemy. This sounds like such sort of textbook stuff, like such an obvious thing to do in battle. And it's only obvious to us now because we people like Sao Sao have done it throughout history. But in this time, that wasn't the textbook obvious stuff to do. And it, it was a huge advantage, like... If this happened today and someone had like, oh, I'm dead, like no one would believe that in this situation. But in this time they did. And it's just fascinating to see. It's fascinating to see where this textbook stereotypical obvious stuff comes from, because it wasn't textbook and obvious at the time. I was going to say, if, it, if it's so obvious, why didn't more think of it? You know, it, 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 mm-hmm. it's, it's really incredible. And we talk about South House cunning. This is definitely a fine example of that. Of course, here's another example, something that we discussed mm. at length. The last time. Remember when Sao successfully targeted Yan Shao's army by going his after his supply chain? Yeah, 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 I remember that. We've talked about grand strategy, the yeah, operational level tactics, that, yeah. and the logistics of war. Well, guess what, guys? The art of war talks about this too. And then in their case, this is, this is very interesting. Obviously, in the art of war, it suggests some of the best targets for which to utilize fire, like actual fire, torches, to help defeat your enemy. Mm-hmm. One is, of course, going after men or horses, main mode of transportation at that point. Another one, you know, grain, fodder, foodstuffs, pretty basic stuff. Transport equipment, which, aka wagons, that's pretty much what I could imagine at the time. And just greater supply chain centers and throughput, like warehouses, barns, you know, various supply dumps, you get the idea. And just going after the supply chains themselves. And his doing yeah. this, he took out an army based on the records that we have, that was more than twice his size. In the case of Yun Shao, he had over 100,000 troops, and Cao Cao had only 40,000. So they didn't have the numerical advantage, but he certainly had the intelligence and the cunning one in how to enact it. Interesting stuff in terms of what we've discussed before. Mm. Cao was also extremely thorough in performing advanced reconnaissance of the train that he was likely going to fight at. He wanted to know very clearly in advance what are the potential unique advantages and disadvantages of the geography that he's going to be forced to fight, which makes all the sense in the world. It seems like textbook stuff, but he did it a lot better than others. The last one that I'm going to give here, and and this is a really dick move. (laughs) 
I love an ancient dick move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sal once pretended to accept a call for surrender, and during the ensuing lull, he launched a full offensive to attain a decisive victory over the enemy that was awaiting the conditions of their surrender. That is vicious. So once again, we, we, talk, we have this image that ancient wars were very gentlemanly and well to do, like you'd start at a specific time. We've got this image that like, okay, let's all line up. We've got this image of this ancient war, like troops on either side, a horn is blown, you run at each other. But and it, it, tactics like this we associate with more modern warfare. Um, but to hear it happening here is outstanding. To hear such the sight and dick moves, as you mentioned, Southside really was so ahead of his time. Like these are tactics that would sound a place in something like World War Two or World War One. Boom! I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Just curious to know, do you think the art of war really does deliver on its reputation? Because it's got such a huge reputation. Like after reading this, I'm kind of tempted. After hearing about this, but I'm kind of tempted to pick up a copy myself. Like I think, I think it's still available online on Amazon or something. I'm tempted to grab a copy, and have a read of it myself. At, at this point, who hasn't published it? In fact, yeah. if you like it in an audiobook version, you can just find it for free on on YouTube because it's public domain. But of course, of course, yeah. So you guys remember when I was talking about know thy enemy, know thyself. At least going back to Christopher Andrew here, who, if you're going to cite an expert opinion on the subject, that's a place to go. He's right there with like a, a Nigel West or, you know, maybe in a more journalistic fashion, though the research is still excellent. Ben McIntyre, who's wrote tremendous stuff, to be sure. Recommend all of his work. So in the case of Christopher Andrew, he certainly believes that the God of War is brilliant and timeless. But he also believes that it suffers from promising too much to the reader. That's kind of interesting. Hmm. Mr. Andrew accurately cites the experience, bringing us back to World War II and Churchill here, <laughs> of Churchill from 1940 to 1942. Meaning the British and, of course, later the Americans and the Western allies and all of that, at that point of the war at least, may have been able to read many of the German enciphered military communications but the lesson here, certainly that would be the most demonstrative one I can think of off the top of my head, was that that kind of intelligence alone is not an assurance of victory in battle. It's interesting. It may greatly diminish the possibility of surprise attack or unanticipated enemy maneuvers, but it can still be very difficult for even the best and most accurate of intelligence to translate into battlefield success. And the above historical example, to be sure, what we have been talking about and referring back to here, the British may have been in the know, but without the proper military resources to capitalize, the intelligence doesn't necessarily amount to too much. And this was something that, in that case, we'll continue using the example because it's really useful here, because it's something we all pretty much can visualize. The War Cabinet may have had raw Enigma Ultra Decrypts. They may not have ever had 100% success in deciphering all of the encrypted messages coming their way because it was, it was a radio war. This was the first war where everything's zooming through the air. So you can catch what the other people are communicating. You just might not know what it is and the, for obvious reasons. And the ultra secret, obviously, you're protecting the source. And at that point in time, at least in terms of the British strategic situation where you still have a global empire and it turns into a global war and resources are finite. And just because you know it's going to happen or you think you know it's going to happen doesn't necessarily mean you can do anything about it. You have to pick your spots. Like we were talking mm -hmm. earlier, 
or more accurately in that point in time in terms of the military resources that would have been available to the war cabinet, there were definitely times where they just couldn't do anything and you had to prioritize. And even then, once again, you're picking your spots because you don't want to tip your hand. Too many coincidences happen, it starts raising questions. And might I add, that most certainly did happen on the German side. So you're kind of getting the idea here, Patrick, which is to say that, does it promise too much? Well, I guess it depends on your expectations, doesn't it? I suppose so, yeah. And I guess one final question I have for you, Paul. Um, we've talked about the art of war in South South's time and how it played a role in the World War in the World Wars. But what about today? Are like modern military people, uh, generals, are they relying on the art of war? Is it that influential that modern people in the war business are still reading it today? There's a lot of people who claim to have really learned from it. But based on their actions, it doesn't necessarily seem that that's the case. What is interesting, though, and we find this a lot in history, where some seminal important work that we can recognize today has come into our focus and is available to us. It goes through periods of inactivity and disinterest. And the art of war was absolutely no different in this respect. And so one of the things that is interesting to keep in mind is that it went into a disinterested portion. Now, we all know it today. It's world famous. One thing that I would say that's really worth mentioning here actually comes from Henry Kissinger. And we haven't talked about Henry Kissinger since episode one. It's good to hear of Henry again. Yeah. I mean, he's almost 100 years old. Goodness, he's almost the same age as the late Prince Philip. And he's, he's still this incredible authority on foreign policy. However you think about him, this is not the debate, but he knows a lot about China and he's written a lot about China. And he was writing and talking about his experience dealing with Mao Zedong and his foreign minister, Zhou Enlai. This was during the secret negotiations that led to the opening of relations between the People's Republic of China, Communist China, and the United States under Richard Nixon. And the one thing that he thought that was truly incredible, I don't have the direct quote here, but I can get you an accurate paraphrase. He thought it was incredible how well-versed they were in this particular document, which, for the most part, only really came into what I would call a huge relevancy in China again, really in the early 20th century, to the point when you have the two-part civil war in China. Mao is studying it very, very closely, and even even the nationalist side is trying to get themselves a copy of the thing. And so he was really impressed that, one, that they have this incredible cultural resource that to, to learn from. But here's the quote that I remember. It's a paraphrasal quote. He said, when it came to Mao's foreign policy, it lent and was far more based in Sun Tzu and the art of war than it was of Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, this has come back into popularity now. And it doesn't have all the answers, of course. The other great seminal work of intelligence in Asia that we'll get to when we talk more about India is the Amashastra, which is kind of a combination between the art of war and, you know, Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, but it's so much darker. That, that's going to be an episode in a discussion, I can assure you. So it certainly has influenced a great deal. And yeah, some in the intelligence community absolutely would, you know, if they're really serious about what they do. But I wonder sometimes if they pay more lip service to it or not. 
I think the name that's a name, but I think the name, the art of war, is such an appealing name. I can I understand why it's drawn so many people in. I think just that name itself does like it does make it sound quite pretentious and fancy to describe war as an art form. That's just something I find quite engaging about it. To have a book on your bookshelf called The Art of War, have it in the background of a photo. I think that's quite appealing. I think a lot of people probably have it just for that reason, but that's just my rambling to the end here. I always love, Paul, when either me or yourself look into like an old book or an old piece of written evidence, like when we've looked into Strava's geography or juvenile satires. It always gives such a great insight into the time. And it's so fortunate that we have these historic pieces of writing available to us. And just The Art of War sounds incredible. I'm like kind of floating on Amazon at the moment debating to add a copy to my cart or not. Well, here's the thing I would say about reading The Art of War. Mm. Incredibly insightful, remarkably influential, very easy to understand, straightforward, and to read. Mm. When you read it, you will have no question about what the author or potentially authors, depending on how where you sit on that debate, were looking to communicate to the reader. And what I can definitely say here is bringing this back to the China that we're talking about in Cao Cao. Mm. It's obviously just another example of his intellectual prowess matched with his brutality and, and, and putting them both together. Now, he made many mistakes. There were definitely things that if you were to read The Art of War and you were to say, hey, he's supposed to be this great devotee. Why did he make this mistake? Well, guess what, guys? You make mistakes. War is yeah. very confusing. You don't have all the information. You're in the moment and you're just trying to make the best call you can. There's no time for serious deliberation, especially in warfare of that time. Goodness. So for us and being able to talk about warfare, I know this was something of a hybrid where we're talking about this in the context of the China that we're talking about in our episode and relating it to more modern history or even modernity. And in this case, we can definitely do it because there's there's a confluence, you know, there's a clear, in many respects, linear trajectory of how that influences our world and intelligence gathering operations and how we do it and how we think about it, how it impacts our lives is absolutely fundamental to the HD world we live in within the realm that it exists. I'm looking forward to getting into more of this because if we're going to start this conversation and, and go in later more and discussing intelligence operations and intelligence gathering and covert operations, this is where we start. And mm -hmm. we want to hear your thoughts on this. Have you read The Art of War? What are your thoughts on it? What are your takes on it? How do you, does it even surprise you that Cao Cao would be the guy to go all in on the art of war by reputation and by representation and image? I think it's a pretty clear, no, nah, no surprise there. But there's no doubt that like any work, influential or otherwise, it comes into popularity, it ebbs out. And today it's, it holds a very, very special place in in the case of world history, and our canon of incredibly influential, insightful, and majestically seminal works and the way it has affected our HD world. Thank you so much for bringing to light the art of war, not just for myself, but for some of the listeners as well, I hope. It is a pleasure. And I look forward to getting into this more because like I said at the beginning, when I realized this was finally possible, I was literally frothing at the mouth. But what do you guys think? If you're on YouTube, leave a comment. What are your thoughts on the influence of the art of war? 
how do you think it compares to On War by Clausewitz? And for all intents and purposes, have you read it? Leave your thoughts below or email us at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Find us at the socials, Twitter at adhistorypc, and of course, Instagram at adhistorypodcast. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast. And with that, of course, us here, you there, and we'll be back after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage, at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.